Humans, hello, humans, hello, humans of the world. It is me, Ellie Krug on Ellie 2.0 Radio on AM 950, speaking to you live. Yep. Yep. It's one of my rare, rare live shows. Um, I am saying these words and you are hearing them instantaneously. Well, I mean, maybe with a five second delay, but isn't that quite lovely? Um, I've got a great show for you. Uh, some things to make you think. I don't have a guest, but no worries. Um, I have you. I'd love to hear from you. It's a free agency Saturday. You can raise any subject that you want um, by calling me at 952-946-6205. But I will give you a prompt, okay? Because the theme of today's show is about making amends, about making things right. And I'm talking making amends as a society towards those whom we have historically wronged. So we're talking historically wronged um, African-Americans, black people, historically wronged um, Latinos, Latinx folks, historically wronged indigenous people, Native Americans. And of course, we know what's going on right now towards Asian-Americans. How do we make amends? So that's the, that's the theme for the show and, you know, I'd love to have your personal thoughts about that. Um, all right. Remember also that I'm an idealist, uh, certainly and actually a hopeless idealist, someone seeking to change the world. And we dis- desperately need more idealists because there is so much work that needs to be done. So So much work. But let me begin by talking about the waning days of World War II. In the Pacific, the United States was steadily marching, making its way towards Japan, and that included retaking the Philippine Islands. And that's where a 25-year-old soldier by the name of Felix Longoria Jr., from Three Rivers, Texas, was patrolling on Luzon Island with his platoon. And unfortunately, on June 16, 1945, barely two months before the end of the war, a sniper's bullet ended Felix's life. Somewhere in a Philippine jungle um, is where Felix Longoria took his last breath. Now, go forward four years to 1949, when Felix's body had been recovered and returned to his family in Three Rivers, Texas. And naturally, his family in Three Rivers wanted his body buried close by. The only problem, the town's uh, only funeral home, sole funeral home, refused to perform a wake at the funeral home. You see, Felix was Mexican-American, Latino. Three Rivers, Texas, like all other places in the South and many places in the North, (laughs) placed higher value on white-colored people than it did on Latinos or blacks. The funeral director, a man named Tom Kennedy, was quoted as saying, quote, the whites would not like it, unquote, if Felix's wake was held at the funeral home. He offered to set up the wake in the Longora home as an option, but uh, the Longora family was not having any of it. 
Note also here that the town cemetery in in uh, Three Rivers was even uh, was even segregated. The white portion of the cemetery was fenced off from the part of the cemetery where Latinos were interned. Um, and so, to the credit of some, there was a burgeoning movement around Latino identity post-World War II, headed by an organization named the American GI Forum. They went uh, to press about this, about this overt, blatant discrimination against Felix Longoria, a deceased veteran, and his family. And they, they went, they, they did something that today became very modern. They went to the press about it. And what, and what, then ultimately became known as the Felix Longoria Affair. If you Google that, you'll be able to find everything I'm telling you. Walter Winchell, the famous radio columnist, radio um, personality, um, highlighted the controversy on his radio show and said, quote, the big state of Texas looks mighty small tonight, unquote, because of what the funeral home director and the town largely because it was controlled by white-colored people were doing to the Longoria family. Now, that's when an unlikely idealist became involved. You see, there was a freshman senator at Texas who had about 15, 20 years before that been a school teacher in Texas where as a young school teacher, he taught Latino children um, he taught them elementary school. And that, that teacher ultimately became a senator from Texas. That senator's name, Lyndon Johnson. Yes, that Lyndon Johnson. And Lyndon Johnson heard about what was going on with the Ligoria, Longoria family and Three Rivers. And so... Um, he intervened, and he arranged for, for Felix Longoria's body, along with the remains of 18 other soldiers, to be interred not in Three Rivers, but instead at Arlington National Cemetery with full military honors. In fact, Felix Longoria was the very first Latino out of 450,000 Latinos that served in World War II. Felix Longoria was the very first who uh, got the honor of being buried at Arlington. Think about that. And think about the racial hostility that existed in the 40s. Let's, we, we, I, we'll get to what's going on in 2021. But think about the racial hostility. In 2004, there was a man in, uh, um, in uh, Three Rivers uh, who tried to rename the post office in the town after Felix Longoria. But continuing racial uh, resentment. Now, this is 2004, okay? Block that. Eventually, there were efforts to put up a historical marker, um, and even that created a controversy, but the marker uh, was put up, and as far as I know, is at City Hall in Three Rivers. And if you're interested, um, there is a documentary film. Um, all you have to do is Google the Longoria Affair and you'll find the documentary. I have not looked at it, but it looked like it might be pretty interesting. 
This story that I'm talking to you uh, about is more than 70 years old, but it is as relevant today as it was then. And that is damn sad. Lyndon Johnson, our idealist of the, of the hour with that, as we all know, would go on to become president. And then he, that idealist, say what you will about LBJ, that idealist went on to go and oversee some of the most fundamental social justice laws that we have present today. The Voting Rights Act of 64 and 65, the establishment of Medicare and Medicaid, and Head Start, all great programs of the great society that have allowed America to get to where it is today. Can you imagine what our country would be like without those, those social net, social safety net programs? And yet, America cannot give up its past. And yet, white-color people continue to dominate America. Oh, by the way, I'm white-color. I get to say that. Anyone can get to say that. It's a reality. We just saw it yesterday in Georgia or maybe Thursday night. We're seeing it all over the country right now as it relates to voter rights. White color people dominating, using power to stay in power because white color people, a lot of them, not all, but a lot of white color people value white skin over the color of anyone else's skin. It is incredibly sad. Okay, when I come back, I'm going to talk about other efforts to make amends for America's past injustices. I would love to hear from you. The prompt is, uh, what do you think we should do to make up for our past what do you think? Would you be willing to pay more taxes? Would you be willing to change the way that you live? Would you be willing to give something up to make America today a better place for those who historically have not had seats at the table? I would love to hear from you about this, 952-946-6205. When we come back, um, I've got some other history uh, lessons for you, and I look forward to maybe hearing you. 952-946-6205. You're listening to me, Ellie Krug, one of the relatively few transgender radio hosts in the world. Wow. Okay, we'll be back. Bye. Ellie Krug on AM 950, Ellie 2.0 Radio. You have me here. I'm, I'm live. I don't get to do this very often. I would love to hear from you. Our prompt is, but I, you know, it's free agency. You can talk about whatever you want. But what, what do you, here's the prompt though. What, what do you think we should do to make amends for America's past? I mean, we are talking past history 
of grave injustice to those who do not have white color skin. What do you think we should do? Do you think we should do nothing? Ah, just ignore it. It's not my fault. I didn't do it. I didn't create it. Well, I'd love to hear from you about that. Um, so, but um, I'm going to go on. The theme again is about making amends. So um, did you see, have you been paying attention, all right, um, to what's going on in Oakland, California? So Oakland, uh, California, um, it's a city of 450,000 people. Uh, a large percentage of that city is of not uh, – it's a minority-majority city. So you have more people in that city that are not of white skin color uh, than are. And it's a city of great disparities. You have, um, uh, you have white color people there, but you have a lot of them that – um, are upwardly mobile um, from the tech industry. So you have younger people moving in there because it uh, some cheaper rents, cheaper property uh, compared to the overall high, high, high price of the, of the um, San Francisco Bay Area. Um, but then you have a lot of poor people. You have a lot of people that are struggling um, in uh, Oakland. And so, um, for example, uh, uh, Homelessness increased in Oakland uh, by more than 50 percent between 2017 and 2019. Um, a 2016 equity report indicated that white families in Oakland, white color families in Oakland learned uh, median income was $110,000 for white color families. For families, Asian families, uh, the median income was $76,000. For Latinos, it was $65,000. And for black families in Oakland – it was $37,500. So one-third of what it was, of what it is for white-color families, for black families. So uh, Oakland uh, has decided, uh, along with other cities like Philadelphia and Los Angeles and Jackson, Mississippi, um, has decided that it would create a program of giving uh, $500 a month to 250 families, um, excuse me, to 600 families, uh, $500 a month for 18 months, for a year and a half, um, no strings attached. So that money, this is basic, guaranteed basic income money for 18 months, $500, no strings. Now, and that's only going though, that's only going to families. Uh, the requirement is the family has to make $59,000 or less, family of three, a family of four. Um, and, uh, and it's only going to people other than white color people. So white color people, even though in Oakland, uh, there are about 10,000 white color people that live in poverty, they are not included part of this program. The money is not coming from government funds. It's coming from a foundation, $6.75 million from a fa private foundation to fund this program of giving $500 a month to families uh, making $59,000 or less um, for 18 months. Um, and so uh, the, they're also cutting that. So you've got 600 families that are going to get $500 a month. But what one of the aspects of the program is that they're trying to be even more discreet. So there's a neighborhood within Oakland where half the families are going to get the money, are going to get $500 a month. And, and, and they want to 
segre- you know, segregate it within a, a smaller neighborhood to see whether that $500 for that neighborhood changes the dynamics of the neighborhood by giving residents $500 more a month. Now, um, you may recall if you follow me because this is something that I'm extremely um, interested in. If you have followed me, you may recall that several weeks ago I did a story about Stockton, California, where they did the same thing. Stockton's – the report is out about Stockton. They gave 125 people $500 a month, I think for a year and a half or two years. They followed them and they wanted to find out what did those that those families in Stockton spend their money on. Only 1% spent it on cigarettes or liquor, which of course is always the claim, you know, oh, we're going to give them money and they're just going to, they, quotation marks, are just going to waste it. Um, But no, um, actually what they found in Stockton was that people spent that money on necessities, like childcare, like the car repair that they needed to make, like, you know, um, many of them used the money as a way to leverage to get a better paying job or to getting a or getting a full time job because now they had the time they they didn't have to work those extra hours on you know the minimum wage job they could now spend a couple of extra hours a week looking for a better job and that's exactly what happened um, in fact twelve percent of the people in Stockton increased they went up um, in terms of their job level and job income. As a result of that, just $500. So they're trying to duplicate this in Oakland. Now, of course, in Oakland, um, uh, this is creating some controversy because uh, white-colored people are excluded from the program. You have uh, – you've got some groups uh, organized around white-colored people who are saying, hey, um, this is unfair. This is racism. It's reverse racism, however you want to describe it. But here's the reality, Okay. The reality is the deck is stacked. Okay, white color people, they absolutely white color people live in poverty. But but they're not living in poverty in part because of the color of their skin. And that is, I mean, think of it, $37,500 medium income for a black family in Oakland compared to $110,000 for a white color family. Think about that. I mean, that is about a system that is so incredibly rigged. And so if you're going to unrig the system, you've got to target the unrigging. Um, the money, by the way, is not going to be taxable to the families that receive the 500. It's not considered uh, wages. Okay, and so that is, I mean, that's just great. The program in Oakland is also open to undocumented families and to unsheltered families. So um, I don't know. I'd love to hear what you think about this. Um, I, you know, give me a call at 952-946-6205. Is it fair? Do you think it's fair that, you know, you exclude white color families from this kind of a program? And by the way, you know in St. Paul uh, that there's another program uh, that Mayor Carter has uh, advocated for. I think the program has started about giving families in St. Paul um, $500. I think it's $500 additional a month. I don't remember the number of families. I'm trying to track that and hopefully we'll have somebody on my program here to come and talk about that after they have some results from that. So but, you know, I'm – Listen, to unrig the system, to unrig it, 
we absolutely have to do some things differently. We do. And so um, in my view, if that means that white color families don't get the benefit of the same – of some program, OK, giving away free money, then in my view, that's just the way it needs to be. OK? I know that some people are not going to be happy with me saying that but I do. I believe that's the way it needs to be. And frankly, I'd be willing to pay more money, more taxes to have a program like $500 a month to help families who have historically been marginalized and discriminated against in America. I would. OK. When we come back from our break, uh, I've got more to talk about, about making amends. I'd love to hear from you. 952-946-6205. If you like what you hear, visit my website at elliekrug.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ellie Krug. Uh, we'll be back in a minute. Thanks. On AM 950, LE 2.0 Radio, I am just, um, I'm live. Hey, I'm live. I haven't heard from a single listener. Is there, are there any listeners out there? Ha ha ha, I did that to you. Um, give me a call at 952-946-6205. The prompt is, um, what would you be willing to do to make amends for America's historical marginalization of groups of humans? But you know what? It's also free agency. You got something else you want to talk to me about, you know. Feel free to do that, okay? I just love hearing from listeners because I don't get to do it very often. Usually this show is taped. But the theme here is about making amends. And I just got done talking with you about the city of Oakland that's decided that it's going to give to 600 of its residents $500 a month um, for a year and a half. Um, these would be uh, all people other than white-colored people as the city of Oakland's way to – help um, upwardly elevate people who historically are at the bottom of the economic ladder. So um, – and that's, uh, that's in California. In Illinois, uh, this is uh, now from a story, a story by uh, Reuters um, by Brendan O'Brien dated March 21st. In Illinois, uh, the Chicago suburb of Evanston, which has had its own row with race-based segregation, discrimination – um, Evanston has now decided that it is going to pay reparations. That is the word that is being used, reparations. You did not hear reparations in, in Oakland. That's a different kind of concept. But, um, but in Evanston, reparations to people of color. And, um, and that is part of a, a $10 million plan over 10 years where the city will pay money out to people who either directly were discriminated against or who are descendants of people of racial discrimination, who faced racial discrimination. Now, Evanston, Chicago suburb, Evanston, uh, for the most part, very well to do. Today, it's only 16 percent black. Evanston, that certainly tried to keep non-white color people out of the city. They used um, redlining tactics about – and all, we're all familiar with red, the concept of redlining, which is about 
um, walling off a portion of a community, um, and and that that part of the, the walls go around the rest of the community where uh, people who are only white color can live. Uh, redlining, you put people within a, a discrete part of the community who are other than the, uh, white color, and it's all about about getting um, being able to get mortgages, being able to qualify those types of things, okay? And so Evanston uh, actively engaged in redlining. They want to try and make amends, okay? So it is a $10 million program over 10 years, as I said. The very first year, which they're kicking off now, is allocating $400,000 to black residents who can apply for up to $25,000 to make home repairs, down payments on a home, or mortgage payments. The problem with this is that they calculate this is only going to benefit 16 black households in one year, just 16. And so, you know, um, uh, it's uh, not uh, it's not all that big, but I, you know, obviously, um, it it's a start. Okay, it's absolutely a start. And uh, last year, so on this concept of reparations, last year Reuters did a poll. Um, and it found that only one in five people surveyed um, thought that repara- reparation should be paid to descendants of enslaved people in America. Only one in five. So it only – at least last summer, it only – the idea of reparations only had a 20 percent approval, 20 um, percent in favor rate. Um, and uh, so that is something that's going to be a hurdle. And so also um, in the House, the House of Representatives in Congress, 170 Democrats have introduced legislation for a National Reparations Commission uh, to study the concept of reparations. Uh, President Biden has not uh, signed on to that idea yet and um, all 170 Democrats, so that no Republicans have signed on to that either. So that's Evanston, Illinois. Moving on, I want to talk about black farmers. And so historically, if you think about it, you know, the Reconstruction occurred after the Civil War. Uh, You had um, a lot of – you had some uh, plantations broken up. You had had some – you had many, many former enslaved people become farmers – in one way or another. Um, at one time um, in America, 30% of all farmers were black. That was at one time. That is not what it is today. Um, uh, I don't have the specific number. Well, yes, uh, today uh, only 2% of all farms in America compared to 30% um, back uh, post-Reconstruction, only 2% of farms are um, owned and operated by black people in America right now. And in Minnesota, okay, um, there are 68,000 farmers in Minnesota. You want to guess how many of those 68,000 are black? You want to guess? I'd love for you to give me a call and give me a guess, but I'm going to tell you before you can do that. Um, Out of 68,000 farmers in Minnesota, a whopping... We're talking whopping 39 of those 68,000 are black. (laughs) Think about that. I'll come back to that in a second. 
So what's going on now with black farmers? And there's a great, wonderful article in The Atlantic a couple years ago which tipped me off to how uh, black uh, farmers were the victims of great discrimination by the USDA, United States Department of Agriculture. Because the USDA, they operate all kinds of credit programs. They, oper- they operate programs around um, tilling land, around irrigation, all of that stuff. They very – you know, I mean, they're very oriented towards agriculture, but historically, USDA has engaged in racist practice, pra- racist practices. Um, so much so that in 1999, um, in a lawsuit titled Pigford versus Glickman, uh, where black farmers sued the USDA, um, in 1999 there was a one billion plus dollar settlement between the federal government and the black farmers over past racial discrimination. And how did that occur with black farmers? Well, it occurred in a variety of ways. Um, And I'm going to tell you right now, um, uh, Tom Vilsack, um, I'm I'm an Iowan at heart, former governor of Iowa. Tom Vilsack, former uh, uh, secretary of agriculture under Obama, has been renamed secretary of agriculture under Joe Biden. That did not make a lot of uh, farmers who are not white in skin color happy because historically and even under Vilsack, there were problems around discrimination. However, um, for the very first time, the House Agricultural Committee is now headed – it's chaired by a black man. His name is David Scott. He's a representative from Georgia. He is the very first black person to ever chair the House Agricultural Community uh, Committee. Excuse me. And um, – uh, uh, they've started holding hearings, okay? It's the very first time black farmers have been able to come and testify before Congress about discrimination. Um, one of those farmers, now I'm quoting from a story in The Guardian um, by Summer Sewell. This story dated March 25th. Um, uh, Sewell writes that, quote, um, black farmers offered familiar testimonies of racism in the is- industry and from the USDA. Cedric Rowe, an organic peanut farmer in Georgia, spoke of crop buyers telling him that they were done buying peanuts for the day when he showed up. P.J. Haney of the National Black Growers Council told of black farmers getting by on near non-irrigated land while their white neighbors used USDA assistance to irrigate their land. That's the kind of discrimination and and – White farmers preyed on black farmers. They waited to see – they waited to see that the black farmers were in economic um, trouble and then they started – they would buy up the land. White, far, white color farmers would – they would buy up the land of black farmers at discount prices because black farmers could make their payments because – Discriminatory practices kept them from buying seed, kept them from making improvements on the farm to be more efficient. And so, um, uh, you know, that's that's what's going on in America up at the federal level as it relates to um, uh, uh, black farmers. I should also note for you that um, uh, the the – they now have um, – there's now a black deputy undersecretary for the USDA 
And, uh, excuse me, for the uh, Department of Agriculture and the USDA has gone ahead and created an advisory position for racial equity and placed um, a black man in that position. So there is some movement around this. I want to go back now to black farmers in Minnesota, you know, the, the, old, the whole 39 of them. Um, there is uh, hope though, some hope. There's a co-op in Sandstone called the 40-acre co-op in Sandstone, Minnesota. It is the first and only nationwide cooperative supporting socially disadvantaged far- farmers. Um, uh, it goes on. If you go to its website, um, uh, it will tell you that in 1920, there were 925,710 black farmers. Today, okay, today, there is there are 45,508 black farmers across America, down from nearly a million to 45,000. That's across America. 39 of them are in Minnesota. And this co-op, the 40-acre cooperative, is intended to give black farmers, farmers of color, an opportunity to um, build their farms, to build their skill set, and to as a way to be able to um, uh, get a leg up compared to all of the discriminatory practices and things that they have faced uh, historically. My goal is to have somebody from the co-op on my show. I would love to do that. I sent off an email yesterday about that. We'll see if I can find someone. But are you getting a sense? I know I'm, you know, I'm like hitting you with a lot of stuff here, listeners. Um, I know. But this is reality. I mean, this is the way it is. And this is the way it has been historically. And white-colored people most have no idea about this. And I, because I believe in the goodness of all humans, I believe as most white-colored people fully understood what I'm talking about here, they would be appalled. And they would say, of course, we need to make amends. So... Okay, I've got to take another break. Um, I've got one last segment. I'd love to hear from you, 952-946-6205. And um, I will be waiting to hear from you. We'll be back in a second. Thanks. I'm back. Ellie, Ellie Krug here, Ellie 2.0 Radio on AM 950. I've been having a lovely session with all of you, just educating you on injustice and making amends. Hopefully you're getting some value out of this. Um, and uh, we've got those eight minutes. You can give me a call at 952-946-6205. The theme of the show is about making amends. And I've got two more things on the plate and then I'll be done. Um, uh, how many of you saw the story about um, Georgetown University setting up a $100 million fund to make reparations, to compensate 5,000-some people? The genesis of that story is that in 1838, the Jesuits, um, whom 
for the most part, I have great respect for. I'm a graduate of a Jesuit um, law school, uh, Boston College Law School. But in 1838, the Jesuits um, running Georgetown University were having money problems. The Jesuits at that time were also affiliated with uh, another Jesuit order that 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 um, was running were running farms in Maryland, and they had hundreds of enslaved humans operating those farms. So the Jesuits were slave owners, and in 1838 they decided that they would sell 272 enslaved humans. In 1838, these are these were families that they would sell them to raise money to pay off debts for Georgetown University. Think about that. Slavery was so rampant, so rampant that even the priests were slave owners. Georgetown University is trying to make a, um, some amends over that, and they've established a $100 million fund. They've hired genealogists, uh, to go and um, track down the descendants of those 272 people. They've, they've found 5,000 people. And that fund uh, that, they, that they've created, um, uh, which is $100 million, not the $1 billion uh, that the descendants want, but nonetheless, money is going to go to helping those descendants make their way through life. College scholarships medical bills, all kinds of things, making amends. Okay, um, the last thing I want to talk about what's going on or not going on in Minnesota. So um, Peter Callahan on uh, the March 22nd in MinPost did a story about $457 million, uh, making its way, a, a, a bill putting $470 million towards, quote, ending systemic racism in Minnesota is moving through the Minnesota House and he writes how it doesn't look like that bill is going to get passed, but that parts of it may get passed. Um, the main sponsor is Representative John Thompson out of St. Paul, and he's looking for 12 different appropriations ranging from $10 million to $80 million for art and culture, culturally sensitive health care, housing stability, school counseling, and lunch, debt forgive, uh, forgiveness, um, battling recidivism, and fostering police-community relations. And $30 million of that to create five community service centers in Minneapolis, St. Paul, Duluth, St. Cloud, and Rochester, which would be named after Philando Castile. Um, this is uh, half a billion dollars of money being thrown at things. Now, if you, you know anything about Elie Krug, you know I'm a hopeless idealist and you know I want to change systems. But I'm here to tell you thrown a half a billion dollars at things. Well, it may make some difference. It's not going to fix the problem. The only way, the only way that we can really change the landscape, the only way that we really can end systemic racism, the only way is by sitting down and talking. No one is doing that. And by that I mean sitting down in greater Minnesota 
and getting people of all skin colors in a room and asking them, talk to us about who you are, what's important to you, what are you afraid of, what what else do you want people to know about your situation? And this would all skin colors, including white color people in this room, and get them to force them to have conversations. And do you know what will happen? You'll get a lot of people uncomfortable. That is for sure. But you know what else will happen? You'll have a lot of people to understand that we're all in this together, that we're all attempting to survive the human condition regardless of skin color regardless of gender, regardless who we love, who we go to bed as, or any of the other silly things that we use as a reason to make people other. And you cause, we need to, we are not doing this. No one is doing this. I have been advocating for this for a long time. No one is, no one is looking at the cause of the problem. And the cause of the problem is that people value white color skin over other skin colors. And why is that? Because they are afraid of other skin colors. That's why. We have to go and sit down in a room and talk about why we are afraid and then get past it. I mean, you know that this is possible. You break down barriers and then humans you, you no longer see you as other. They just start to see you as one of us. It is, But we cannot do that without communicating. And no program, no program that I have seen is geared at that. And that's not going to require a half a billion dollars to do. But it's going to require imagination. It's going to require focus. It's going to require the right kind of people to facilitate those conversations. It's going to require intentionality. It's going to require talking about it. It's going to require modeling it by our leaders because this is important. The people that are derailing things as it relates to changing the landscape are people from greater Minnesota. Those elected representatives – who come in and say, no, we're not going to spend this kind of money. We're not going to, no, we're not going to change the way that is. No, we're not, no, I'm not in favor of changing the way, you know, policing occurs. My God, okay? Those are the people. And we're not going to get new elected representatives who understand what it means to be other until we educate about that. Okay, that's my take, all right? Uh, reach out to me at Ellie Krug. Uh, Dot com or lejkrug at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. I need to thank my producer, Patrick. You did great today, Patrick. I really appreciate it. And to you, my listeners, yeah, I hit you with a lot today, I know. But we need to do a lot. Sorry. We're running out of time. It is getting really short. Okay, I'll be back next week, hopefully with maybe a couple of happy things. Take care and be well. Bye-bye.